0: Well, this morning, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Rod already said it's going to be a good message. He hasn't even heard it, so I guess, I don't know, the pressure's off or on. I'm not sure. But we're finishing the the third chapter of 1 Peter this morning and standing in our path of these final five verses, 18 through 22. And I just want to start our time reading the passage together, 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. Make your way there and then follow along as I read. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. For, Peter writes, Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the Spirit's Now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Well, as you may be able to tell, this passage is loaded with issues. One commentator named Helm, he essentially threw in the towel at even trying to, to figure this out, what's being said here, but he did provide a fitting illustration for our text. It tells about the Battle of Waterloo. Remember that from history class, a famous battle fought in Europe on June eighteenth, 1815, the French army, led by Napoleon, lined up against the, the Anglo-German-Dutch army, led by the, the Duke of Wellington, battling it out. And back then, news of the battle traveled a little bit differently. Uh, there were no cell phones. They, they couldn't text message. They didn't have email. They didn't have regular telephone or telegraph. News traveled by hand. A report of the battle was, was first carried by ship from France to the south coast of England uh, across the English Channel. The news was then relayed from the coast to London by by way of signal flag. And when the report was received at London, the news was relayed to the public by means of flags hoisted on top of the Winchester Cathedral. During this time, the message of the battle was received, and the flags started to rise on top of the cathedral, and they spilled out. Wellington defeated. But before the message could be finished a dense fog moved in and obscured the rest of the flags. And so the citizens of London had thought that Napoleon had won the battle and that they had lost. It was a crushing defeat for them. But later, as the fog lifted, the rest of the flags could be seen, and the message in total read, Wellington defeated the enemy. The people of England rejoiced in their victory over the greatest enemy they had known until then. The passage we have in First Peter this morning similarly sits in a fog. That fog may not be lifted until the next life. Many have attempted throughout the ages to best decipher the flags through the fog, so to speak, but no consensus has been reached. It has stumbled and, and stooped Bible students for centuries. And just to give you some perspective on the challenge this passage presents, many scholars would agree First Peter 3, 18 through 22 it's not the most difficult passage to interpret in First Peter. It's the most difficult passage to interpret in all the Bible, some would say. Martin Luther himself said of this passage, quote, "...a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter meant. I cannot understand, I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it." End quote. Now, it's kind of funny because Luther did go on to explain it. And he did a pretty good job. But the point I'm making is that great and greater minds have grappled with this text for 2,000 years. And sometimes they've come away still scratching their heads. This doesn't mean the task of interpreting it is impossible. It's not because God's Word is clear. You just, people need to realize though that we're dealing with some limited revelation. Peter's obviously talking about the spiritual world here, the realm of God, and there's only so much we know about that world. We just have to accept that some things we won't know until the next life. That being said though, I spent pretty much the entire week this this past week setting this passage. I had a, a really f- a fun time of setting for myself. I really could have kept going on, but this passage has loomed in the horizon for me for months now in a good way. I've known for months that I was going to have to tackle it myself and grapple with it myself. But that's really, that's the beauty and the challenge of expositional preaching or verse by verse preaching. You just can't skip over the hard, the hard passages. You've got to go through them. You've got to deal with them. And a great time studying the passage and I think we're ready to, to handle it. Now thankfully there's some good news here. The good news is that, is that the point or the purpose of the passage is very clear. The overall message behind Peter's words is plain enough to see. It's just these little details he throws in here have some people wondering, what does he mean by that? And we want to, of course, try and uncover as many of the details as we can, but, but thankfully, the big picture is intact. Now, But before we do anything, though, before we really get into this, I thought I'd just take some time at the beginning and acquaint you with some of the issues that we face in this text, some of the questions that come up. Now, you're probably not familiar with all of them, so let me give you a little a refresher course. Most of them center on verse 19. So why don't you look there again. It's talking about Jesus. It says, In which he, Christ, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Verse 20, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Let me stop there for now. Verse 19 consists of nine words in the Greek. And every single one of those nine words has been debated throughout the past 2,000 years. biggest question, of course, centers on these spirits. Who are these spirits? Are they unbelievers who died in the days of Noah? Are they Old Testament saints who died in the days of Noah? Or are they fallen angels, some people say? And what is this prison? Is it hell? Is it some other special place? Is it no place at all? Is he just talking about the spiritual realm? What is Jesus preaching here to these spirits, whoever they are? Was he preaching a second chance of salvation? Was he preaching triumph? Was he preaching condemnation? And we even need to ask, when exactly did this preaching take place? Was it in the days of Noah? Was it in between Christ's death and resurrection? Was it after the resurrection, but before the ascension? All these questions, and we still haven't even gotten to verse 21, which says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. What, what does that mean? And there's more. That's just a few of the questions we have here. But I trust for now you're getting aware that well, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of questions in this text. And they don't have necessarily quick and easy Sunday school answers, Wish they did. We've got to dig for them. It's not all overwhelming, though. Like I said just before, that there's some good news. And that is that the overall thrust of the passage is quite clear. So let's start with that. That's probably a good idea, right? Let's start with what is, is crystal clear in here. And that is the big picture message Peter is trying to send. What's he trying to, to say here? Let's start with the context of 1 Peter. If you hear last week, you know that Peter's focus from here on out is, is what? Suffering. Starting back at chapter 3, verse 13, he's really coming to his main topic of suffering, Christian suffering. He actually touched on this topic before, though, at the end of chapter 2. I want to remind you of that. So look back at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. Pick it up in the middle of verse 20 where he says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, This finds favor with God. So there it is right there, just like in chapter 3, verse 13 from last week. He's saying, as you suffer and endure for the sake of what's right, for the sake of Christ, that finds favor with God. You're blessed, like we learned last week from 3.13. And furthermore, he says, the suffering in your life, it's not optional. If you're a Christian, suffering is actually a part of your calling. Look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 21. Remember this, he said, For you have been called for this purpose, talking about verse 20, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The Christian life, you see, it's all about following the footsteps of Jesus. And this actually explains our experiences of suffering. Why do we suffer? Because we follow Jesus. He lived, he suffered, and we can expect the same. Stop and think about that. Put yourself in the shoes of these ancient Christians. Life is hard enough, but Jesus promises new life, eternal life. He promises forgiveness. So you believe in him, you follow him. You commit yourself to Jesus, and what do you get? More suffering. You get intensified persecution. Who wants that? Why would you sign up for that? That sounds depressing. Jesus suffered, so now you have to suffer? And indeed, this would be a depressing reality if suffering had the last word in Christ's own life. If all Jesus experienced was suffering, and all you can expect is suffering, then this is depressing. But that's not all. Here at the end of chapter 2, where Peter left off talking about Jesus, where was he? He was on the cross, suffering, crucified, dead, seemingly defeated. I and mean, there he is. He died. The Messiah just died. But as Peter continues, the life of Jesus didn't end on the cross. Evil, suffering, and death do not get the last word In the life of Christ. Rather, triumph gets the last word. Jesus didn't stay on the cross, but he rose, he ascended, and he's seated in power right now. Yes, Jesus suffered greatly, but he also triumphed greatly. And this, in fact, is the greatest encouragement for us. Because there we are, we're following his footsteps. Yes, that's going to take you through the, the valley of suffering. But in the end, it will also take you through the triumph and the glory which you share in him. Do you ever think about that? And do you realize that, that you share in in the triumph Jesus accomplished? And I'll tell you what, this is why Peter is writing our passage for this morning, chapter 3, 18 through 22. Through the experience of Jesus, we can rest assured that suffering... It's not going to have the last word in our lives either. Even death will not have the last word in our life. As we will ultimately triumph through Christ. Last week from verses 13 through 17, Peter told us how to respond to suffering when it comes. That's very important. But now in verses 18 through 22, he's going to tell us how to comprehend our suffering. How to mentally process it. And the message is that suffering is not the end. Triumph is the end. Now, how is the triumph of Jesus described in our passage? Well, there are two evils in the universe which are behind all the suffering and evil that exists. Jesus triumphs over both of them. The first one is our sins, us. Jesus triumphs over sin, not his own sin, of course, but our sins. He was crucified for our sins. He, he died for our sins, forgiving them, paying the debt for them. But then he rose from the dead and he, he conquered death and our, our sin problem. But Jesus also triumphs over a second thing, the spiritual world. What do I mean by that? What am I talking about here? Well, we talk about in scripture reading, the Bible mentions this unseen world, the spiritual world. It's where God dwells. It's where angels dwell, the good and the bad. There are fallen, evil angels. We call them demons. Like I said before, to us it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't think like this. We should, but we don't often enough. But they are uh, real. Fallen angels or demons led by Satan, they are responsible for bringing evil into God's universe before mankind did. They are an evil power uh, to be reckoned with. These spiritual powers are driven in their rebellion against God. Their goal is to overthrow God's creation because they're hardened in their rebellion. And guess what? They, at first, succeeded. Satan himself, he essentially killed the entire human race in the garden when he tempted Eve by opening the floodgates of sin for humanity. That's why he's called a murderer from the beginning. That right there, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, that should have been the end of humanity right there. But God was gracious, and in his grace, he promised a redeemer to redeem mankind and to crush the serpent's head. Remember that? Genesis 3.15. And so from then on, Satan and, and these fallen angels made it their mission to oppose this Messiah figure. And think about this. Satan, he sought to wipe out all of the Jews in the time of Esther, and he sought to wipe out the messianic line in the time of Joash, all to stop the Messiah from coming. That didn't work. Later, when Jesus was born, Satan tried to kill the infant Messiah, and then he tried to tempt the adult Messiah. Those also did not work. So Satan eventually led Judas to betray the Messiah and the Jewish leaders. To kill the Messiah, to crucify him, and guess what? It worked. His plan worked. He he finally succeeded. Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. And at that moment, surely all of those fallen angels and demons rejoiced, thinking they had won the victory. But as Peter writes in our passage, they didn't win the victory. Jesus triumphed over them. Their evil did not win the day. The Messiah rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and right now he sits in power, even over all of those mighty evil angels. Look at verse 22 again in our, in our passage in chapter 3. He says Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And did you catch that word there? Subjected? Where have we seen that word before? If you've been with us for the past couple of months, over and over again we've seen Peter using this word about subjection, submission. He's been calling us to be submissive and to subject ourselves to ungodly authorities above us. He spent nearly two chapters talking about that. But he's saying, look, that's not the end though. Now, the end consists of all of these ungodly authorities, whether human or angelic, themselves being subjected to Christ. Everything gets subjected to him. Jesus wins in the end. And as we follow in his footsteps, we can be assured of our victory in him and through him. That's the message. This is 1 Peter 3:18 through 22. Just kind of wrapping that all together, we have a passage showcasing the triumph of Jesus over all evil, both the triumph of Jesus over sin and the triumph of Jesus over spirits. And nothing should be more encouraging to believers who are being persecuted than to know that their Savior wins and has won and has triumphed over everything that is opposing them. And they too will be victorious in him. So this is the big picture of our passage, 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Hopefully that is starting to make some sense to you. And the good news is, however you interpret the spirits of verse 19 or the prison or the proclamation or the baptism, the big picture doesn't really change. Jesus triumphs. Jesus wins. That's the point technically, and we could stop here. We could call it a day. We could walk away with the big picture in hand. Now, let's not worry about the details. One commentator I read actually did that. He got to this point. He's like, okay, I'm done. Let's just not even worry about the details. Of course, we're going to take this further and and try and understand more of what Peter is saying here. We've got the big picture down, which is great. We still have these lingering questions, and I want to shift gears now and start, start going over some of them some of these questions about, okay, well, what exactly, though, is going on here? And if you haven't guessed it already, this is going to be a pretty dense sermon. And so I really hope you had your coffee this morning. And put your thinking caps on to your best to follow along. If you're here with us for the first time today, my preaching is not normally going to be this technical, so don't be scared. But sometimes we have to really get into it and and get into the text. We're going to do that now. There's a lot to go through. It's going to take a couple of passes. Just like a crop duster has to take several passes to cover a field, we're going to have to make a couple passes to cover this text. We'll do that this week and next Sunday as well. Make a couple of passes. Remember this. Our passage has two main focuses. The first is the triumph of Jesus over sin. The second is the triumph of Jesus over spirits. Today, we're going to focus on the last one, the triumph of Jesus over spirits. We're going to explore that, unpack that, even apply that. Next week, it'll be all about that second point, the triumph of Jesus over sin. So that's what we're going to do with this. And I think in the end, this will prove, although dense, a profitable study for your spiritual walk. Hang in there with me to the end. I'll show you, surprisingly, how really practical this passage can be. So for today, here's how we're going to proceed. We've got one point, just one, the triumph of Jesus over spirits. And we're going to take that one point deeper. How did Jesus triumph over spirits? When did Jesus triumph over spirits? In what way did he triumph over spirits? And more. We're going to find that in our passage. Normally, you know, I give you guys a nice little proposition, three, five-point outline, something like that, something easy to follow along with. None of that today. I don't want us to get bogged down with anything. Just one point, the triumph of Jesus over spirits. We're just going to explore that, explain it, apply it, call it a day. All right, where do we begin? Well, let's start at verse 18. Look there again. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The opening of this verse is actually pretty straightforward. Some people call this Peter's John 3:16. It's such a succinct gospel statement. It's a wonderful passage. We'll look at it next week. But look at the next phrase in verse 18. He says, "Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit." We've got two phrases here describing consecutive experiences in the life of Jesus. First, it says he was put to death in the flesh. This is, of course, referring to the violent death he suffered. And Peter is also highlighting that Jesus came as a true man and died as such. Remember John 1.14, the word became flesh. Essential to the atonement was Christ's human nature. So much so that in, in 2 John 7, John actually labels people as antichrists who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And the point that Peter is making is that Jesus came in the flesh as a real human being and then he died in the flesh. His death was real. At one moment on the cross, his human heart stopped beating. The blood stopped coursing through his veins. He he breathed his final breath. He died in the flesh. After that, what happened? Verse 18, he says, he was made alive in the spirit. There we have our first big question. What does it mean to say that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, as the NASB has it? I think this is best taken as a reference to the resurrection. The resurrection. I know some people want to make this refer to some sort of special experience of Jesus in between the death and the resurrection. I don't think that fits here, and I'll tell you why. Why I think this is talking about the resurrection. First, you've got this word made alive. See that? To make alive. This word means to give new life or to give life where it has ended. And we know that Jesus, he's always existed. His spiritual life did not come into existence after the cross. So for him, this surely means him being brought back to life, which would be the resurrection. But think about this. You know this. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't the same. His resurrection was physical. It was a bodily resurrection. That is an essential truth. But it wasn't the same type of body. He was clearly different. And that's exactly what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15. In the resurrection of the dead, which everyone will experience, the body is sown perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown a natural body. It is raised, what? A spiritual body. Now, that doesn't mean non-physical. But what it means is that our entire selves, body and soul, are changed and made ready for existence in that spiritual realm. This is what happened to Jesus. Yes, his resurrection was physical, but he also rose spiritually, meaning in that realm of the spirit. His body was glorified and made fit for existence in the spiritual realm where he currently presides All of this is actually confirmed in in the context of 1 Peter. We're we're asking the question, Peter, what do you mean by flesh? And what do you mean by spirit? And the best way to answer that is to see how Peter uses these terms and this contrast in the context, and he does. Let's look down at chapter 4 and look at verse 6. He makes the same contrast between flesh and spirit. The two words we're kind of wondering about here. He says, for the gospel has for this this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now get this, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit, same words here, according to the will of God. We'll see this in a couple weeks. Being judged in the flesh refers to physical death. Living in the spirit refers to gaining spiritual life in heaven which is that spiritual realm of existence where we will all live forever. So so the way Peter is using these terms, flesh and spirit here, is to make a contrast between things visible belonging to this present world and things invisible belonging to that unseen spiritual world. That world exists. It's all around us. We we catch glimpses of it in scripture, like when their eyes were opened to see that the, Armies of angels surrounding them in that one battle in the Old Testament, but it's something we cannot see ourselves until we do. We too die in the flesh and are made alive in the Spirit. So take a take a step back now. Verse eighteen. Peter is saying in this verse that death was not the end of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Yes, he did suffer and yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he rose. And he was made alive in the Spirit. And it is in the Spirit, in the spiritual realm or spiritual state of being, where Jesus and all of us will will live forever. If you're tracking, I told you it's going to get heavy. Let's move on to verse 19. As verse 9 continues, Peter's going to tell us now about something Jesus did while in that spiritual realm, so to speak. That's verse 19. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19 in which, he says, in that spiritual state of being, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So according to the view here that I'm putting forward, this is something that Jesus did after the resurrection, but before the ascension. Now, a quick little side note. Some people want, they want to try and fit all of this in between Christ's death and resurrection. You know those three days his body lay in the tomb? You know what I'm talking about? In fact, that's actually what I first thought before I really studied this. Catholics believe that during those three days, Christ went to hell and he released some souls from purgatory. Some Protestants even believe that Jesus descended into hell and he set free all those Old Testament saints that had been there in, in that holding place. Some believe that in the Old Testament, Sheol is the place of the dead and everyone goes there, the good and the bad, but there's a division with the kind of the hell version and Abraham's bosom version from Luke 16. I did a lot of studying on this this week. We're not going to get into it because we've got enough on our plate. I just want to say this, though. Old Testament saints, when they died, they went straight to the presence of the Lord. They didn't go to purgatory. They didn't go to a holding cell. They went to the Lord. Christ himself said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in... Paradise. And whatever Jesus experienced in between his death and resurrection, I, I don't know. But I don't think this passage in 1 Peter is talking about that. I think this is after the resurrection. So that's my side note. That being said, so at some point after the resurrection, Jesus went somewhere. He made some proclamation to some spirits who are in some prison, who, verse 20, once were disobedient, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Okay, that's a lot. What's going on here? What's he saying? Now, as you can imagine, this verse, you know, the spirits and the prison and this proclamation, it's been taken differently over the past 2,000 years. Let me just take a quick second here and just expose you to some of the ways people have interpreted this. And just listen along at how some people have taken this one. Some people believe that this is talking about Jesus preaching in spirit through Noah himself to unbelievers at the time of the flood who are now spirits in prison or hell. It is a minority view, but it was made popular by Augustine. Others believe that this is Jesus sometime after his death preaching in hell to those who died during the flood, giving them a second chance of salvation. Still, some take this to be Jesus preaching to unbelievers in hell, a message of final condemnation. And one more view I'll give you here. It's the view of the early church. It's actually the more popular view today. It's talking about Jesus after his death or after his resurrection, going to hell or someplace, and he's proclaiming a message of triumph over fallen angels who sinned during the time of the flood. Uh, You've probably not heard all of that before, all of these options. There's probably some some crazy stuff to you. Where do we begin with this? How do we get this right? Definitely the best place to start is with these spirits in verse 19. You see that? That's where we're going to start. Who are these spirits? As we saw, some people think they're humans, either believers or unbelievers. Some people think they're angels, fallen, evil angels. Which one is it? This word for spirits, pneuma in the Greek, it can refer to both humans and angels. However, when this word comes in the plural, like it is here, spirits, and doesn't have any qualifying phrase like spirits of men. It's just by itself, spirits. It's always used in reference to angels. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus was casting out spirits? What was it talking about there? Talking about demons or fallen angels. For example, so the word itself leans us in the direction of, of angels. However, you know, the word can mean both, so the context is really going to be the, the more important factor here. What can we learn about the identity of these spirits from the context? The answer is not a ton, but we do have verse 22, which is pretty interesting. Look again at verse 22 of First Peter 3. Verse 22 says that after the resurrection, angels and authorities and powers were subjected to Christ. Those are three terms used elsewhere in the New Testament, all referring to those spiritual forces at work that we cannot see. The the, the heavenly powers, demons, angels, whatever you want to call them. That's what those words refer to. And so here in the context, we actually have an explicit mention of, of angels, authorities, powers. It's in the context. It's also you know, kind of leaning us toward that view. These spirits could be angels. And we got to keep going, though. Think about this point. This is very important. You start in the Bible. This is a good question to ask yourself. Ask yourself, what view would Peter's original audience have readily understood? If you Think about that. That's very important. Because when Peter says this, He's clearly assuming that his readers know what he's talking about. He clearly assumes that they know his reference here, so he feels no need to explain himself. In his mind, he's like, spirits in prison. Yeah, you guys know what that is. There's no explanation. He's assuming they're going to know what he's talking about when he says, these spirits in prison. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what would his original audience most likely have understood? Humans or angels? You get the question? I think, again, the answer is fallen angels. Now, why do I say that? Well, believe it or not, this was actually a popular Jewish belief at the time. In fact, there's a Jewish apocryphal book called First Enoch that actually gives this interpretation. First Enoch, it's a book, it's not a part of scripture. But it does reflect what the Jews believed at the time, and there actually is some truth in it. In fact, Jude, in his letter, References First Enoch, and in First Enoch we learn of this tradition, where Enoch himself he went and he made a proclamation, a message of condemnation to disobedient angels who had sinned during the time of the flood, per Genesis six, and were consequently imprisoned. Now that is, I think, pretty substantial, because First Enoch was a book they were familiar with; it was part of their you know, heritage or tradition. I think Peter might be taking this view and correcting it. Either way, though, the point I'm making is this. I think Peter's original audience would have more likely understood these spirits to be fallen angels than humans. Again, it's leaning us in the direction that these spirits are fallen angels. Last point I'll make is from Scripture itself, of course, the most important. I think actually this view is confirmed in Scripture. That these spirits in prison are talking about fallen evil angels. I'm taking on a little tour now. So hang with me. Turn to Jude. I just mentioned Jude. Just flip the couple books to the right, right before Revelation. And we're going to look in the letter of Jude. Just one chapter. And look at Jude, verse 6. He says, And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. That's talking about that, the spiritual realm. He, God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, and catch this, in the same way as these, that's in the same way as the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example of undergoing punishment of eternal fire. What do we see here? He's talking about angels, fallen angels, which we call demons, who indulged in some sort of gross sexual immorality, going after strange flesh, not keeping their own spiritual domain, and they were consequently judged and bound by God. And now they are kept in eternal bonds under darkness, awaiting that future judgment. This kinda sounds like spirits in prison. Let's keep going. So keep file that one away. Okay, we've got Jude six and seven. Let's turn back a little bit to Second Peter now. Let's go backwards. Get to Second Peter and chapter 2 second Peter, chapter 2. First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude, by the way, are all in this same tradition, which is good. It's helpful. Second Peter, chapter 2. And look at verse 4. Very similar. Now, Peter, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and verse 5, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Let just stop there for a second. What do we see here? Again, we have angels who sinned. Seemingly, during the days of Noah, given the parallel with verse 5, and because of their sin, whatever it was, they were locked up. They were, they were put away in hell, he says, but... The, ver- the word for hell here is not the normal word for hell. It's actually a different word, uh, Tartarus, elsewhere called the abyss. You ever hear about that? What the, what the scriptures teach about this place called Tartarus or the abyss is that it is a holding place for those, those super wicked demons, too vile to be let loose. God has imprisoned the worst demons there. It's like a death row. they just sit there, bound, waiting the final judgment. This is in contrast to some other fallen angels or demons who are allowed to still roam the earth. Christ himself came in contact with many of these. Remember this? Luke 8.31. He came in contact with some demons. Remember what they said to him? They begged him not to command him to cast them away into the abyss. Same place. To me, at least, all this is kind of eerily starting to gel together with what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3, that these are fallen angels cast into this prison. One more passage. I'm going to take you through on this little tour. We've got to go now all the way back to Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. All this mention of Noah and the flood, this is where we got to go. Is there anything back in Genesis 6 that... That confirms or denies this? Genesis chapter 6. Let's read the first four verses together. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, this is also a hotly debated passage. so it doesn't, make, it doesn't make things any easier here. But here's the thing. In numerous places in an extra-biblical literature, this phrase, sons of God, you see that? Verse 2, verse 4, sons of God, they're viewed as angels. So many of the Jews, they interpreted Genesis 6 referring to this uh, as angels. Furthermore, this phrase, sons of God, it's used every time in the Old Testament, always referring to angels and then lastly you have a pretty clear contrast here sons of God daughters of men seemingly a contrast between humans and angels now I know this is, is very debated it's no by no means a slam dunk but I believe this is talking about a group of fallen angels who like Jude mentioned left their their proper abode that the spiritual realm they possessed men during the time before the flood. They intermingled with human women, and they produced a, a truly wicked offspring. Mankind was already depraved, but this heinous demonic influence pushed things over the edge and was a contributing factor to God destroying the world in the flood. So, to wrap this up, and to me at least, these factors come together confirming our question, who are these spirits in verse uh, 1 Peter 3.19? That they are, in fact, fallen evil angels. The same ones mentioned in Jude and Second Peter and Genesis 6, even First Enoch, who committed such a great transgression against God's authority that God bound them in a prison of sorts until the Day of Judgment. Now, at this point, you may disagree. You may think, I don't buy this. That sounds bogus. And you know what? That's okay. Join the club. There's not, like I said, wide agreement on how to interpret 1 Peter 3. But after all of my study, this is where I've landed up to this point. And going off of this interpretation now, because we have to move forward. The rest of the puzzle pieces from 1 Peter 3, they start falling into place. If these spirits are indeed fallen angels, this prison is, well, clearly, one way or another, the prison is Tartarus. It's the abyss mentioned elsewhere in scripture in connection with these super wicked angels. Where is this place located? It is located for sure in the spiritual realm, which is exactly where Jesus went when he made his proclamation. And what did Jesus proclaim? Well, that's a good question. Let me just say this. Any view that takes Jesus proclaiming a second chance of salvation to anyone is dead wrong. That's definitely not true. It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes a judgment. And Scripture is crystal clear after death, there's no second chances. It's, it's, it's game over. You either choose life in this life or you don't. Indeed, if Peter wanted to say that Jesus was preaching the gospel, he would have used the word wangelizo, meaning to preach the good news. Instead here he uses a very neutral term, keruso, meaning to herald, to proclaim. Pictures of herald coming into town, standing on a platform, and just delivering a message to the people. And so what is the message that Jesus delivered to these most wicked spiritual powers? And the answer has to be a message of judgment and victory. Jesus is proclaiming his triumph. Just like the context of 1 Peter says. Remember that? He's announcing to them that, that their age-old plan has failed. He's saying, guess what? The, the sun, the seed just crushed the serpent's head. If you can turn back to 1 Peter 3 now, we can, we can get into verse 20 at this point. Let's get us back to verse 20 of 1 Peter 3. Speaking of these angels, he says, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, there's our Noah reference again, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And we'll talk more about this verse next week. We see, another, another reference to the days of Noah again, is that I think, to me at least confirming the interpretation, this is referring to that same incident where those angels fell and sinned uh, right before the flood in Genesis 6 and Jude and 2 Peter. The dis- disobedience here is a deliberate rejection of God's authority, and the patience of God here is not for salvation, it's for judgment. God is still doing that. He's still patiently enduring the wickedness and evil in the world for the salvation of the elect. God would not terminate the world with a flood until the ark was finished and Noah and his family could be saved. And likewise, God will not terminate this world with fire until all of his children are saved. Peter continues on, takes a little tangent, talk about salvation. We'll come back next week and cover that. Verse 21 of chapter 3. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, this is really talking about the triumph of Jesus over sin. That'll be next time. Let's finish up with verse 22, however. Who, Christ, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. After his death, after his resurrection, Jesus was translated to that other realm where he now sits at the right hand of God. And sitting at the right hand, it's a clear picture of his power and authority. He's a supreme. Supreme power and supreme authority over everything. Right now he is that Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And right before or during his ascent into heaven, Verse 22 says all angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I believe this is, again, coinciding with Christ's proclamation to the spirits in prison. And personally, I believe it was during the ascension, that translation from this world to the next, where he he made that proclamation to the spirits in prison, just personally. But in a broader sense, we know for sure all creation, all angels, all everything was made subject to Christ even now. As a final point here, just to wrap this up a little bit, I find this really amazing. The fact that in so many other places in the New Testament, when it talks about Christ's ascension, his exaltation, it also mentions his triumph over angelic forces. It's really strange. For some reason, all of the biblical writers feel the need to throw that in there. The fact that, you know, hey, look, Jesus has triumphed, he's exalted, He's ascended, and by the way, he's he's triumphed over all the demons as well, over all the angels. They all feel the need to mention that. And I think this is confirming his triumph over all the evil forces in the world. For example, Colossians 2.15 says, When Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those two words again, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. And then we have Ephesians 1. Why don't you turn that? This will be the last place we'll turn. So you can safely leave First Peter now. Ephesians chapter 1. Here's another really interesting reference. We're in the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 20. Ephesians one twenty. Talking about Christ. Pick it up in the middle speaking of Jesus, says when he raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, see the exaltation, he was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are four terms again. Those are all referring to angelic forces, spiritual forces. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there it is again, confirming Christ triumphs. And if that's our takeaway here, just to finish this off, you know, can our passage in 1 Peter 3 be confusing? Perhaps it can be a challenge to interpret. Yeah, but that message is clear. Jesus triumphs over everything. And he triumphs over all spirits as well. Every evil force that exists in the world. And they do. They do exist. In fact, just really quick, pop, pop over to Ephesians 6. We read it in scripture reading, but look at verse 11 and 12 again. There's a reality out there of spiritual warfare. And Ephesians six eleven reminds us, He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, verse 12, for our struggle, our present struggle. It's not against flesh and blood. That's not really what's going on here. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, that spiritual realm. It's real, and they're opposing us even now. Peter himself will write in chapter 5 that the spiritual warfare, it's actually responsible for much of the evil and suffering we encounter in life. And you know, Job, how God allowed Satan and, and demons to torment him. The same can still happen. But like Noah and his family, we live as minorities in the world. We're surrounded by an evil society. A society surely made worse by demonic corruption, which we cannot see. The message is not to fear, not to worry. Christ has triumphed. Your confidence, your hope, your boast should be in Christ because he has triumphed. He's triumphed over all evil, even those mighty spiritual forces that work against us. And if you take away just one thing from this morning, just let it be that. Christ has triumphed over everything, even all spirits. Put your confidence in Christ. If you trust and hope in him, he will rescue you and save you. You may suffer in this life. You will suffer in this life, just like Christ did. But as you follow his path, you're going to share in his victory and triumph, which Peter in his passage reminds us of. Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, and one day he will draw us there to himself. So hope in this, rest assured in this, let this motivate you to endure anything you face, which is the great takeaway. Endure the suffering, endure the challenges, because he has triumphed. A good way to conclude, as we've done many times before, it's always good, the words of Romans 8, don't turn there, just listen and how surprisingly this matches with what we've learned this morning. Romans eight thirty-seven through 39 He writes, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has triumphed. Let's pray. God in heaven, we we praise you now. We just simply exalt you now for your triumph. We praise the Son who has triumphed over our, our sin, He's triumphed over spirits. Every evil force at work in creation that you have allowed to exist, he himself has triumphed over them. We, we rejoice in the fact that the son has indeed crushed the serpent's head. And now we just wait and look forward to the time of his return when all things will be made new, including ourselves. Help us all, Lord, to just endure, to hang in there, to not abandon the faith, to trust Christ, and to look to him awaiting our time of triumph in him. Lord, there, there's really nothing in us Triumphant. It's only through Christ that we get anything, so we, we're thankful for that as well. Bless us as we leave here. Maybe we meditate on what we have in him, thanking him for the victory that's already ours. And we just use this to motivate us to press on, to endure, to walk the walk, and to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.